On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be joined by Orlando Wood, Chief Innovation Officer at System One Group and author of Lemon and Lookout. We'll talk about how advertising is becoming increasingly left brain dominated and how that's not good for longer term growth. So join me as I talk to Orlando Wood on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, I'm delighted to be joined by Orlando Wood. Good morning, Orlando. How are you? Hello, Dave. Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm, I'm looking forward to this because, um, yeah, the books are great. We were chatting off, off mic and, and the books are great. So before we get into it, um, how's business? How's life? How's, how's, how are things with you? Yes, very well, thanks. All, all, all very well. I've uh, been quite busy recently. I had the session at Cannes that was... Um, very interesting with Karen Nelson Field and Peter Field. So, um, yes, that's been of course some interest. So, yeah, no, very well, thanks. Enjoying the summer. You you didn't get COVID over in Cannes, did you? Because I had Nick Emery on a couple of weeks ago, and he managed to get COVID in Cannes. So, did you did you stay? stay I didn't. Safe? I didn't get it. Uh, I'd had it before, but um, not that that's any protection. But um, no, I was. I survived, thanks. Oh, uh, although I was a little bit hoarse while I was out there, but I, it wasn't COVID. No. But uh, no, I'm. I'm uh, I'm okay, thanks. Very good, very good. Well, I'm conscious I, w- I have a lot to get through. I want to ask it loads of stuff. Um, so we'll crack on if you're ready. So um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, con- and well, congratulations on the books. They're 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 amazing, as I said, and and, and just kind of beautifully presented and put together. So first, the first thing I'd say is if, if anyone who's in advertising they haven't read them or marketing, you should definitely check them out um, because they're they're just fantastic. So, um, but I want to I want to just talk about. The idea of left brain and right brain, like it's it, it's been around for a while. Uh, that, that kind of idea that parts of our brain are good at, at certain things, and and it, uh. it's an overly simplistic view. Um, but we think that kind of right is creative, and, and left is logic and that kind of thing. Um, uh. But you say you say it's not quite that that simple or straightforward. It's like no. more nuance than that. That the those parts of our brain perform different tasks. Can you? Can you talk to me just what what your right brain, left brain, yes. what that thing is all about then? Yes, it, it probably is worth just spending a few minutes on it because a, a lot sort of rests on it in the yeah. in the two books. And I base my uh, understanding of the topic on Ian McGilchrist's hemisphere theory. And Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, you're a psychologist, a philosopher actually. Uh, who has devoted his life to trying to understand brain, the two hemispheres of the brain and how they attend to the world. And, uh, you know, since the 1960s, we've had this mistaken idea that the left and the right brain might do different things. But it's not that they do different things, Ian McGilchrist explains, you know, it's that they do things differently. They have different takes on the world, different priorities, if you like, different modes of attention. Mm. And, you know, he describes in in his books and in his research uh, a great deal of, um, uh, in great detail, uh, how the two hemispheres sort of tend to behave, and, and not just in, in people, but, you know, that he references studies on other mammals and birds even too. And it, he sort of describes how the left hemisphere, uh, which is... By the way, the brain is fundamentally it's asymmetrical. The right hemisphere is heavier and, and bigger than the left hemisphere, um, and they sort of have slightly different 
different that they made up differently as mm. well. So mm. the left hemisphere, you know, prioritised information within localised brain region. The right hemisphere has is more associative, passes things around more, has more myelin. That's the white matter that helps to, you know, speed uh, transmission, if you like, and also makes it more sensitive to certain drugs and certain hormones. So there are structural, structural differences. But what he describes is that the left hemisphere is narrow in its attentional field and it it sort of abstracts things from their context likes to break things down into smaller parts um it is not uh very good at understanding lived time it sort of breaks things up likes to fix things in moments in you know so that they're unchanging likes things that are familiar it likes things that are repeatable um it's uh, really sort of sees things as as right or wrong. It's not very good with ambiguity, right. not very good with uncertainty either. Um, and so it, it, uh, it, you know, things, things is quite dogmatic. It's quite, uh, has a, of, often has an overly optimistic sense of the world as well. It, it can't understand space or time. It flattens things, abstracts things, and it, um, it can't understand music, uh, either just very basic rhythm. So I talk about, uh, you know, Ian's theory, and I talk about then what the right hemisphere does, is the right hemisphere presents the world to us in the first place. It's responsible for broad and vigilant attention. Um, for It's also better associated with episodic memory, putting things into, you know, uh, long-term memory, people, events, places, that sort of thing, whereas the left hemisphere is more sort of associated with this semantic memory facts and figures in the public mm. domain and the right the right brain presents the world to us in the first place anything of interest it passes over to the left brain to sort of manipulate what it sees and, and do things with it but the right brain is um presencing it's broad and vigilant in its attention um it's responsible for sustained attention to for things that are just sort of slightly off stage if you like things that are um, you know, at the edge of our awareness is what it presents these things to us, makes us alert to these things. And it understands people, expressions, gestures, uh, everything in context. It understands, you know, contextual uh, space, if you like. And it understands, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, things that wrap around the words, the, the implicit. It understands lived time and space, um, movement, uh, understands music, um, understands humour, it, tell, it tells the difference between a joke and a lie, that's the right hemisphere, and also metaphor, because it can understand that two opposing thoughts could both be true at the same time. So so these are things that are important for metaphor and humour, and, and actually for understanding anything, really. Mm. I mean, Ian mm. describes metaphor as, you know, a way of us understanding the world, you know, it, it, it immediately... Uh, presents something to us that in a very tangible, interesting way, and and we can only learn by learning what other thing it's like, you know, what this thing is like. So, so those are the two hemispheres, and mm -hmm. um, and you know, as we'll probably come on to mention, you know, uh, I think at certain times in history, you get this sort of swing. Um, I think following technological leaps, I talk about this in the latest yeah. book in particular, towards habits of thinking that are more associated with the left hemisphere yeah, yeah. and, and we'll, we'll get on and chat about a, a couple of the, the findings in the book um because it's, it's a great read um now now this 
in the book you say that that brand building there's lots of different terms but let, you know we, we knew we know what we mean by brand building advertising so you say in the book that that's going to become more important in a digital era and and not less right. important so um but that's not what's happening so why is it why will it be more important and I think more importantly why is it falling out of favor at the moment and falling out of fashion well a very good question um I mean, in the book, in Look Out, I, I draw a parallel between the way that the two hemispheres attend to the world and the two types of advertising, brand building advertising and performance advertising, because brand building advertising needs to capture the broad beam attention of the right hemisphere to put it into long, put the brand into long term memory to make something interesting, actually. You know, it doesn't, brand building advertising doesn't assume an interest in. In the brand, it seeks to create interest in the brand. Mm. The left hem, and then anything of interest, it passes to the left hemisphere. Well, it seems to me that performance advertising, you know, is is you know uh, works best once the brand building advertising has been done, and really you're trying to nudge the uh, the, the left hemisphere towards a purchase in some way. So the, the narrow beam attention, you know, is 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 better suited to that performance advertising. And so what we've found, I think, in this in this in, it has been a cultural shift, I would say, in this digital age is is you know this sort of left hemisphere uh, thinking starting to to emerge, which causes all sorts of problems in society and culture, but also in advertising. And so you see more and more. Uh, you know, spend put between behind performance advertising with its known certainties, as it were. You know, measures which feed back. You know, in the in the short term, um, it's easier to measure these effects than it is the broad and lasting effects of, of brand building advertising. And we live in a technological world where um, you know a kind of engineering mindset climbs to the top. And so that the left hemisphere is is really not very good at understanding metaphor, uh, humor, um, anything that's uncertain, you know, or ambiguous. And you end up with advertising. You can't do narrative either, by the way, doesn't really understand narrative. Um, you end up with very literal transactional advertising. And I think, by the way, you see these shifts more broadly in culture. It's not just advertising. Advertising is just a sort of it's a barometer, really, for, for for what's going on more broadly. And so, you yes, you, you you get this sort of shift towards performance think, as Peter Field uh, describes it, away from advertising, which builds mental availability, puts things in long-term memory, and helps that performance advertising work better. So I think there's a cultural shift. I think there's a as a um, a change in our habits of thinking, um, and I think it's going to become, ironically, that you know brand building advertising. I argue is going to become more important, not less, because in this digital world, as brands move online, you know they lose some of their real world mm. physical availability. Um, and you need to make up for that. <laughs> you know, you need to create mental availability through your advertising. And you you also in a in a you know a world where you know when any any brand in one country is competing with a brand the other side of the world, 
because everything is now available kind of online. Well, you, you brand building advertising builds a kind of moat around your business to make sure that, uh, you know, you sort of are seen as you've come first to mind, first of all. So you type the brand into Google rather than another brand. But also, you know, uh, you're... Uh, you have something that you're perceived to have something that the other the other people don't. So that's the that's why I think it's going to become more important. And yet we're increasingly mm. doing the opposite. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And and I love in the book because you talk about um, how new technology. You talked about their new technologies. Kind of these moments in history. Um, lead to a cultural change and a, a narrowing of our attention, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of left brain dominant. And you talked about um, Gutenberg's printing press, and that uh, that, yes. uh, that helped spread kind of ideas at scale. Um, you know, because but it also fueled growth for reading. And then, but actually, when, I love the way this was talked about. But actually, when when we read, it, it's it's an inward looking um, activity, mm-hmm. if you will. Because previously, I think. Um, people would have gone and and listened to people talk in crowds and much more social aspect. So we tend to be more inwardly focused. And and also, as you point out in the book, when you you lose tone and you lose got a little bit of meaning. So when something's written down, we know from emails, you can you kind of take the wrong tone from things when you read it. So there's much yeah. more um, misinterpretation, the potential for misinterpretation when something's written down. So I found all that really fascinating and, and that moment of society turning in itself. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, in the out, I, I describe two periods in history, uh, as well as our own, where I think we've seen similar shifts towards this left brain dominance or, or this narrowing of attention um, drawing on Ian's work, but also others too. And, you know, the first one of these is the is the printing press. And I think you have to go back that far, really, to understand fully some of the changes we're seeing around us today in society and culture. And that was, you know, it was invented in the 1440s, but it took a while for it to take effect. So by about 1500, you know, there were all sorts of things being printed and distributed um, not just the Bible, but you know, the Malleus Maleficarum for identifying spotting witches and trying witches, tales of monstrous births and wondrous signs, tales of the apocalypse, you know, it must have been an awful kind of really disorientating, worrying time to have lived through. And, uh, you know, much like the the fake news of today, actually, you know, no one quite knew what to believe, I guess. And old established orders were, you know, uh, were changing and and new ideas were emerging. Um, But, you know, you get this you get this sort of in the towns and cities in particular where the professions were, people started to look down, you know, at their books and primers and in particular in churches obviously changed with the reformation but people started to uh, block themselves off in their box pews look down at their bibles and primers uh, a new kind of solemnity started to take hold you know so they used to in the in the church you know the old church which we might call the catholic church now you know they were they were they would lower a dove down through a, a ghost hole in the ceiling every whits and you know and then pour water a bucket of water over the people below and 
and this was in Germany, and and um, you know the wettest person would be proclaimed the dove for the year, you know, and that was uh, there was a sort of sense of fun. Everyone was relatively comfortable with this uh-huh. with this environment, you know. Everyone sort of was relaxed in it. That changed, and people people introduced pews into churches. There was less freestanding rather than looking at the altar. People were looking at the pulpit from where the word of God was proclaimed. The word took on a huge importance in this period. There was the stripping away of the sights, the sounds, the smells of the church, the characters in the saints, the whitewashing of walls. Um, you know, all of all of these things um, are, you know, I think could be attributed to the left brain's preferences. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a, 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 obviously you see, you see this in art, you see it in the art of the period, the words on the, on the canvas take on more importance than the visual image behind. There's a sort of barrenness in the landscapes and the darkened skies. And many of these features I think we're seeing today in advertising, um, you know, the words on the screen, the self-consciousness, even the pointing finger I see quite a lot, which was a hallmark of the, the art in those periods. So anyway, so yes, that's one of the periods I look at. Um, and I think there are there are parallels yeah. in the visual arts, you know, that, 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 that with today's world. Yeah. And then the you then talked about the the, the kind of the, the second moment in in a great moment of societal change being um the, the industrial or, or the the manufacturing kind of revolution as it were. Um and, and talk to me about that because again, I just found it fascinating about the, the kind of what happened there was that I think you know, and it makes sense when you when you break a a, a task into component pieces, people lose mm. a sense of perspective of the overall thing. But then, but then what happened was, was something was, the the ideology was taken from the factory floor and, and it kind of transcended and and you know applied to school, you know, education, the media, yes. and even, you know, other things. So talk, just talk to me a little bit about that for anyone who hasn't yes. read the book. Well, that's right. I mean, I mean, Ian McGilchrist described it as the, the reformation of matter in the late 19th century. Um, you know, huge industrial expansion, urbanisation, a sense that uh, community was perhaps being lost uh, a, a rise in mental illness too. This is, I mean, this is the main period in which sort of schizophrenia, which has much in common with left brain dominance, uh, started to emerge. And you get the kind of the, the rhythms and componentiality, so you know, of of industry starting to find their way, I think, into culture more broadly. Um, and artists started to compete, felt they had to compete with science. Um, and they started to approach it a bit like a science. So, you know, Picasso, for instance, uh, tried to sort of deconstruct it and uh, make it analytical. You get these analytical theories of art starting to to, to um, dominate. Um, you get futurism with its rejection of all things to do with the past, a kind of quite a, quite a an aggressive form of art. And, you know, with the invention of photography and Flight. So uh, Picasso experimented with picture, aerial photographs from the air, of course, which has this effect of flattening everything. So everything looks flat, you know. But then there's the X-ray, which found its way into things. That the, the microscope, you know, um, probably influenced Miro's spiral, spiraling sort of tendrils, you know. So so yeah, science science, you know, was embraced by um, artists. 
And uh, you get the component parts, you know, of industry, I think, starting to affect, they get that abstraction in 1900, 1910. Um, and, and, and you, you know, you think about what industry's about, what manufacturing is about. It's about repli replicability, identical parts, you know, abstracting the bits of the, of the whole thing that you're making mm. into smaller parts. You start to think about efficiencies, uh, measurability, a loss of you get this loss of context actually for anyone working in the factory, and that makes them feel, I suppose, a bit anonymous, like an interchangeable cog with everyone else. Um, and you get, you know, you feel a bit detached from the whole, and you, you also get this sort of mindset emerging, this iterative tinkering, which. Um, is you know a kind of I suppose test and learn you know let's let's just twist change this little thing yeah. you know uh, mm. and then let's change this little thing a sort of marginal gains thing emerges which is quite different from you know the sort of creative thinking that in, results in in big leaps yeah um, and, and so you also get because with the workforce becoming more and more feeling more and more anonymous and detached. And this sense of detachment, you know, was, was palpable, I think, in that period. You get the kind of desire to emotionally manage the workforce. So I think, you know, there are probably parallels with with some of this, you know, mm. with what we see in a technological digital world as well. Um, and, of course, it's not just that there's a chap sociologist I referenced called Peter Berger who talks about you know primary and secondary carriers of these habits of thinking there's the the primary characters the carriers would be the factories anyone involved in working in the factories but then there are secondary carriers too like schools media advertising that that sort of amplify this this way of thinking and i think that's what we're seeing today mm -hmm. again because we and here we are today with a, a technology revolution, if you will. Now, technology has been amazing because I don't know how we would have got through no, you know, lockdown and COVID. Um, like, I'm, I'm still quite amazed that what our office functioned. And do you know what? It Like, most things can, can happen. Um, business as usual stuff is fine. I think some things it's hard. I think it's hard to kind of... Um, Sell in anything new uh, if it's if it's not kind of operational, but it all works quite. It all works fine, and so. But technology, like even now, we're we're probably like a lot of meetings are still things. Technology become far more uh, important, and we'll continue to use it, and it has its, yes. its advantages and disadvantages. But you talk about um, how technology thins out communications and how actually they contribute to a loss of empathy. Can you talk to me about both of those points? Yes, of course, of course. I mean, don't I don't want anyone to think I'm a Luddite, you know. Um, technology is, has done so many wonderful things. We're speaking now by uh, technology. Um, but there are a few things that it does, I think, uh, and has done to us, particularly the internet. I reference... Um, Professor Marina Hertz and her work in this area in Lookout in the book. And, uh, you know, she talks about how communicate, sort of internet communication has thinned out um, uh, communication in a sense. That's her, I think, her mm -hmm. terms. And if you think about it, you know, it's very reliant, a lot of in, uh, digital communication on the word, the written word, so texting, messaging. Um, uh, posting, um, 
uh, tweeting, uh, you know, uh, all of these things, uh, email. When things start to lose, you know, other dimensions, so uh, I suppose, you know, gesture, emphasis, intonation, things you get in the human voice accompanied by a face, um, you know, expressing those things, then you, things start to get very rigid and, you know, you start to interpret things very literally and people can jump to the wrong conclusions, uh, mm. you know, this, not take things in the spirit in which they were intended. And then that that leads to its own, you know, vicious sort of circle. And, you know, we're losing, I think, some of our ability to express things. I think I actually think that, you know, it has changed our ability, our ability to empathize and to talk to other people, the, the digital world. And, you, you know, you, you've got you, you, some of these things cause problems in and of their own, their own right. And so this, this thinning out, I, I think it was um, uh, Marshall McLuhan who said that, uh, you know, the, the invention of a new technology changes the ratio of our senses. Right. Well, I think it you know, it probably has. It makes made us more reliant on the word. You know, on the, on the, on the eyes, less on the ears, um, and and that 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 changes us. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it all makes yeah. it makes perfect sense when you when you read it the way it's presented. Um, and I, I'm going to quote you like in the book. You say narrowing of attention. It. it Leads to not just a detachment, but also an adversarial stance. So, and this desire to mock That's and right. shock, right? I thought that was really interesting as well. So, I mean, you see, I don't know, like how toxic social platforms are at the moment. This polarization of kind of, I think a lot of people just kind of stay out of it. And it seems to be the loudest voices are, are those on the kind of opposing side things, and everyone just wants to get, you know, we, we, we seem to have lost. I know I'm generalizing, but lost the ability to to um, respect anyone's opinion that is not yours, anyone who disagrees with you. So, um, yes. you know, it does. At, at at times, I think it feels like we're 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 a really progressive society in certain things, and then in other things, you see, it's quite depressing that we're kind of digressing. When you see even things that have happened the last few years, like you know, the, the rise of of hate groups and social media, and even and even Wade v Roe, that the like it seems we're going backwards, and we are we're a, a world of polarized opinion so um yes talk to me about that a little bit well i mean the, this these sorts of things happened before the internet so it's not entirely down to mm. the, down to the internet but uh, there are certain ways in which the the digital world hasn't helped and that's um you know the algorithms that it it builds that are that reward attention uh push people to you know to further in content that interests them that is like the other content they saw. And eventually you end up with this polarization, this pushing to, to the extremes. Um, there's also, you know, a relationship between, we've created a kind of a, a digital world which rewards, um, rewards goal orientation. So, you know, dopamine, um, uh, which, which I think, you know, is associate hormone associated with, the, the the pleasures of of the rewards that you can get at the end of a you know a search say or goal or, or following a goal. Um, dopamine, the left hemisphere is much more sensitive to the to dopamine, and it can lead to sort of these slightly le well these left brain tendencies. And I think you what we found in you know there's a Jonathan Haidt uh, social. Um, uh, psychologist 
talks about different types of um, uh, trust, and he talks about bridging and bonding uh, capital. And bridging capital is 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 the sort of bonding, but it's sort of it's sort of capital between trust between different groups, if you like. Mm. And then there's bonding capital within group sort of um, trust, if you like. And it certainly it seems to me that you know we've moved very much to within group bonding, and the internet's enabled that within group bonding at the expense of this bridging trust between groups. And so, you know, I mean, he suggests that we should we should you know emphasize shared goals, similarity, mutual interdependencies. Um, rather than emphasising the difference between groups, which can lead to further division. So, you know, you're right. I think, you know, there's a lot, so many, so much talk of hate at the moment, almost to the point where hate starts to define us. And then that's not a good place to be. And it also sort of suggests that hate is a thing, like a cancer that can be cut out, when I think the truth is much more complicated than that. Um, and requires careful study and, and, and understanding. Yeah. Um, now, we're, we'll talk about advertising now for a little bit because we, and that's what I loved about the book because you don't actually even, I think you don't even have to be in advertising or even that interested in it to, to enjoy the book because a lot of it is just kind of, you know, about oh, art, you. it's about culture. So, but we are here to talk about advertising. So yes. we, we'll have a chat about advertising. Less. So, um, and it, it's more it, like what the, what the book says. It's more than just saying that advertising is more left brain today, right? Because because as we talked about, society turns inwards, and and advertising is kind of just a reflection of of the times in which we live to a degree. Um, but can you talk to me about how you're seeing a lot more of these kind of left hemisphere characteristics in advertising today? Um, you know, some of the things that you see creatively. So this this sense of detachment, narrowed attention. Like what what are the the prevailing characteristics that you see more of in advertising today. Um, yes, well, well, there are the thing, there are the, there are there are the things that I mention and talk about in Lennon. So the the uh, short sharp cuts rather than showing things in live time. Um, the, the advertising becomes increasingly rhythmic in the way it sounds and the way it looks. Uh, the uh, dislocation from time and place so often you don't know where an ad is set or you know when it's set um there's uh, also th- this uh reliance on the word on the screen uh telling us what to think and do this kind of unilateral communication which also manifests itself i think in the stare so i think mm. we're seeing the stare a lot in advertising this sort of straight at the camera you know quite unsettling uh, and as my research shows, it pushes people away. Um, perhaps talk more about the stare in a bit. But then, you know, the, you you also get this um, um, abstraction. So things are really close up. So you just see the hands or the lips or, yeah. or the eyes. Um, well, this is very narrow beam and quite stressful to look at, you know, to look at things up close for long periods. And, and you know, the, it's quite different from the, from the sort of advertising we used to see a lot more of, which was set in a real place, with you know people interacting with each other, uh, dialogue, narrative, metaphor, humour. Um, many of these things have have mm. slipped away, and we've lost music. T- 
too to this to this very rhythmic kind of beat. Talk to me about the so, snare, by the so, way, because you talked about advertising there. But, it, but yeah. again, it was kind of you introduced the concept of the snare. You saw this in in art. So while we're talking, yeah. you just mentioned there. So can you just explain the snare and the, the cultural significance yes, of that? Of and how, yeah. Well, this is something I talk a, a, a lot about in Lookout, and um, I think you see it this stare in. Uh, Dürer's work in around 1500, before the events of the Reformation. You see it in uh, the avant-garde artists, 1905, 1910, before the Great War. You know, and I think we've been seeing it again over the last five or six years in advertising and in culture more broadly as well. And the stare is, um, at its heart, is a kind of rigidity, really. It's different from a look. You know, a look is... Um, grounded in the body, it's voluntary, it respects its subject, changes in its intensity. But a stare is fixed and rigid and analytical, and it seeks to break down its subject, to reduce it in some way. And it's also a sign of terrified helplessness as well. You know, if you think about predator and prey, they're both locked in this stare um, before, you know, one goes in for the kill. And there is uh, there's something about that I think in in the stare and there's so it, in uh, art in these previous periods you see it ahead of these big shifts and I think you're seeing it again today it's a, a sense that all is not well and it suggests to me as I describe in the book that you've got three other things happening in culture more broadly one is this sense of detachment one is um, a loss of human vitality in in culture as things become rigid, you know, sort of rigidity in the face. Um, and you've got this sort of adversarial stance that starts to take hold, desire to shock and mock, and also a flight to fantasy, you know, sort of strangeness, um, a bit like surrealism, you know, that mm. emerged in the sort of around 1920. So, so you've got this... Uh, You've got this sort of strange flight to fantasy, which you can see, I think, in in much of advertising. Um, you know, ordinariness has disappeared, perhaps as a, a desire to create something distinctive. But it, it, it sort of some of it has lost its root grounding in the real world, in, in, and that in which case, you know, it becomes less relatable for, for people. So, so you get these sort of broad. Broad things, I think, when the stare emerges, which which I think you know we're sort of seeing again. Yeah, and you and you said because you're you're seeing it in advertising more more um, today as well. Um, why has humour fallen out of fashion with advertising, and how does that deepen the loss of of engagement um, or connectivity or human connection? Well, we, we've seen it in our work at System One, the company I work at, which measures emotional response to advertising. Certainly in the last 10 years, people are finding advertising less funny than they used to. Um, you, you see it uh, in the type of awards, you know, the, the, the campaigns that, that are awarded, um, you know, humour as a creative approach is falling off a cliff, really, when you look at the can winners. Um and a sort of uh, more purpose-related advertising has, has, you know, taken off in its place. But yes, I think this in the book I look at the um, work of a perhaps the only philosopher to talk about humour at any 
length, and that's Henri Bergson, who was writing in about 1905, as it happened. So against a similar backdrop, I think, of, you know, mechanization. Anyway, he talks about um, humor as really being uh, our desire to poke fun at rigidity. And I can't help drawing parallels with the rigidity of the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere's ability to, to you know, to understand humor and think that perhaps it's the right hemisphere's way of keeping the left hemisphere in check. Because, and we need humor because humor, if it has a social function at all, it is to keep us flexible. It's to keep, you know, keep society malleable, flexible in movement. And when it disappears, it's a sign that all is not, all is not well. So, I think we, you know, we kind of really need uh, to, to to take this serious, to take humour seriously, as it were. Um, not least because it's a very effective way of doing advertising, and yeah. as I show in the book, and actually not just for connecting with an audience. In fact, it was Jeremy Bullmore said to me once, you know, laughter is a sign that a connection has been made, but also its ability to help us structure a campaign. Because Bergson talks about you know, how it works, inversion, exaggeration, repetition, um, overlapping beams. So being able to see the same thing from two different perspectives at once, we delight in that seesaw, that os mental oscillation. But also uh, the um, transposition from one thing to a different key. So you're maintaining the relationships you know, in one scenario and then putting them in another one. So an example I give is sort of, he gives actually is, you know, imagine a play where you've got um, uh, the masters playing out a scene and then the servants play exactly the same scene a minute later. Um, in, but the, the relation, different scenario, but the relationships are maintained. So, but these, these are ways in which you can structure a campaign. And uh, I give examples in the book of how this, how this works. So humor, I think, really important. Humor of character, humor of um, talk about humor, humor of language, comedy of sound as well. All of these things to connect with an audience. There's a great um, G.K. Chesterton quote which goes something like this: um, uh, "Humor f finds its way under the door." While seriousness is still fumbling at the handle, oh, and I think that's a that's a lovely uh, a lovely metaphor <laughs> uh, for how it works. Yeah, it is. Um, so you, you've talked a little bit about left brain, the, the, the characteristics of of left brain advertising. So, what talk to me about some of the characteristics of of, of right brain advertising, and, yes. then, and and talk to me about some of your work that shows how. These are more successful in terms of, um, you know, advertising that appeals to the right brain. They have a greater impact in the in the longer, medium to longer term. Yes. Well, I talk, I talk, uh, and provide evidence in in the book for the kind of advertising that you know connects with audiences and creates these lasting effects, profit gain, share gain, um, and holds people's attention. And I talk about the importance of the living um, of character. And how character, you know, is is fundamentally important. And I talk about, you know, what that entails. So I look at the work of the great animators and, you know, whose job it is to breathe life into uh, something. Um, and I think it all starts with an appreciation of the of the the human body. So that the eyes, the mouth, the the hands, um, 
the, the features by which the soul of another makes themselves you know, makes itself known to us, as it were. And that uh, really fascinating for the right hemisphere, which um, uh, you know has a uh, a real interest in in the living and people and anything that's out of the ordinary. I talk about the voice, um, looking at you know the great great animators. Um, so getting the voice right, getting the walk right. You know, you think of things like despicable. You know, uh, yeah. with that, yeah. you know, uh, these these things stay with us. Uh, I, I saw um, an actor in the street in London the other day, Philip Davis, who played um, he played Mr. Smallweed in BBC's adaptation of um, A Bleak House, and he would turn to his wife, Mrs. Smallweed, um, and uh, regularly and say, "Shake me up, Jody, shake me up." Weird, isn't it? But it stays with you. Um, and it's because the voice is so important, so interesting. And it was, you know, at the heart of many of those great Looney Tunes characters that I talk about in the book. So so voice, um, movement, gesture, intonation, emphasis, all of these things, but the performance aspect, actually, and I mean that in the, in the sort of theatrical sense, not the kind of activation advertising sense. And then I talk about the importance of character, incident and place. So something happening, unfolding in lived time, in a real place. And all of these things hold attention and, and engage us and, and make put things into memory, put the brand into memory. I talk about music and the importance of uh, music to amplify our ability to feel. Song in particular, words stay with us, you know, in, in music um, in a way that they probably won't if they're not sung. Mm. Um, I, t- I talk about colour as well, and uh, the and post production. You know, so uh, when when real film disappeared and digital uh, came in, uh, you know, film was a chemical thing, and the, the the director would work with their own lighting, you know, to get everything, you know, just right on the film. But uh, digital sort of very crisp and very sharp and it, mm. but it also mm. is very uniform in its in it, so everything starts to look quite similar but in post production you can sort of add these effects color brain diffusion and i look at the difference it makes and it does make a massive difference a lot of uh, treatments today are quite cold in their color hues but if you introduce some warmth to it then it actually not only improves emotional response, but changes the meaning for people of see of scenes, music and color. They're like metaphors, they're meta-communication that communicate things beyond, you know, what what you'd expect, beyond just the words, as it were. Yeah. So I talk about all these things. Um and you also talk about one of the characteristics of, of um the, the right hemisphere. The concept of betweenness, um, so mm. and how art and how art showed a greater depth of understanding of humanness, and then how how really brilliant campaigns kind of played with that style. Um, so talk to me about that. Explain what it is, yes. and then uh, again from your research, because because what I love about it is you you've you've got loads of research to, to it's not just your opinion about yes. things; it's all no. based in, in in numbers, which which we like. So talk to me about betweenness, um, in particularly in advertising, yeah. and whether it works that storytelling. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, when you get two people or more people together in a place or a space, something else emerges, you know, uh, that sense of betweenness. And uh, you see it in the 
look at the look at the genre paintings of you know uh, Vermeer, for instance, or de Peter de Hook, um, and you can see this sort of connection between people being played out. And it and it hints at something, but you know you can tell that there's something going on here, but you're not quite sure exactly. But you know the right brain can pick up on the the, the, the visual cues, you know, on the the way that people look at each other, the the, the gesture, you know, the, the the small expressions in the in the face, in the eyes, in the mouth, all of these things, which provide interesting context, useful context for understanding the world. So that's what the right brain is very good at. And, and you can see in my work that, you know, knowing glances, uh, dialogue, uh, you know, expression, spontaneous expressions in the human face, um, touching even, you know, I mean, by which I mean, you know, sort of uh, 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 gentle, you know, sort of um, relationships. Mm. All of these things that you know are very interesting for the for the right hemisphere to capture and hold attention, um, and that's uh, and I th try to show it through art, you know, through art over the centuries, and and yeah. as well as in advertising. But that explains, I think, why, by the way, um, you know, romance um, in in uh, advertising is a very successful approach. Think of the gold yeah. blend ads. Yeah, I still remember those gold blend ads. Yeah. Yeah, years ago now, but you know that's the thing—they they lodge in memory. Yeah, they were kind of like, I mean, the the coverage around those ads when they would come out, like when you know the, the they would advertise and, the ads. I know, yeah, they're at, like the, ads and, and come, people, the new ads coming out. And people tonight. couldn't wait to see it, like <laughs> see how the story unfolded. Um, yeah, the, you talk about you talk quite a lot about Looney Tunes and characters. Um, I don't want to get your because I'd love your thoughts on this. So. You see a lot of characters in in advertising, and the the question I have is sometimes: Do you ever think the character becomes too um, bigger than the brand, if you will? So I keep seeing the Meerkats ad. You know, compare the Meerkat. That was a genius idea. You know, the misspelling of of the URL for the website takes you into this kind of a, a, a different kind of world of the Meerkats. But then. I see it now, and they're giving Meerkat meals, they're giving stuffed Meerkats when you take out and show. I don't. Can it become bigger than the brand, or do you think it's always good, or do you think sometimes, nah, you know what, it, it, they're good, but if the if the characters become too salient, then do you can you lose track of the the product or service or the brand that's that's talking to you? What do you think about that? Well, I, I think you know that they tend to take on uh, their own. They tend to open up new dimensions, don't they? Mm. And. Uh, the, I mean that the one you talk about has been going for was it twelve years the meerkats but you know you look in the states the Geico gecko I think has yeah. been going for twenty perhaps you know they tend to wear out in the boardroom a lot more quickly than they do amongst the general public and they they tend to you know I mean you think of Kevin the carrot for Aldi you know it has people queuing up outside the stores looking for you know the, the Christmas toy they 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 do. Um, they create some kind of association, meaning, fluency for the brand that means it comes to mind before any other. They also reduce price sensitivity, uh, so they help They help to drive fame. They are very unique. You know, a successful character is, by definition, a unique character. Unique uniqueness In uniqueness lies believability. Um, 
and they 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 create you know they they seep into culture and into conversation as well. So they all help they help to create mental availability. Do they become bigger than the brand? Well, I don't think so. I mean, they become they are the brand. They're yeah. intertwined with the brand. Jeremy Bullmore, you know, used to talk about um, uh, brands. You know, sort of. You have to fill them up with something, you know, with with meaning, you know, keep refreshing them, you know, like a battery that needs recharging. And uh, that's what a character can do. You know, I mean, and and we have been seeing them seeing them decline, you know, and uh, we have we haven't seen as many. So I think it's time to to bring them back, as I often say. Yeah. The decrease in, in right brain features within advertising um, versus left brain. And this has coincided with a decline in advertising or creative effectiveness over time, as the, the IPA work suggests. Is that correlation or causation? Well, I think the two are, are, are connected, um, undoubtedly, because the you know it's these right brain features that I show that elicit an emotional response that put things into memory. And it happens over the same time period that we've seen advertising effectiveness fall. And that's what I was talking about at Cannes with um, Peter and Karen, actually. Um, and, you know, we talked about the uh, Peter Open by saying essentially that, you know, that the amount that advertisers spend on advertising is not creating the kind of market share shifts or the mental availability even that we would expect. And we think this is down to you know, three things, brands moving or companies moving their advertising budgets more, much more towards performance advertising than brand building advertising. The second is uh, advertisers buying low attention media and you need high attention media to create mental availability. This is Karen's piece. Mm. Um, she also talked, and I've seen this in my book, I sort of show it too, is that you know if you've got a good and a bad ad and you put them on a low attention platform, their performance will be pretty similar. Yeah. You put them on a high attention platform and the good ad will you know just suddenly catapult you know yeah. catapult away as it were. It's so much better. And then this third thing you know with me and they're talking about how creative styles have changed, so that they're no, no longer lodging things in in memory, lodging the brand in memory, creating that connection. You know which. Uh, so those are the, that, that was the triple jeopardy, as we right. put it, um, that we're, we're facing and, and trying to encourage people to create brand building advertising, you know, for broad beam attention on on high attention media. That's the way to go. <coughs> yeah, um, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was I, I, Karen's on, I think. Um, Two days time, I'm, I'm chatting to her. So. Um, oh, terrific. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But um, and uh, like. To creatively, so when you're thinking about how how hard is it to get attention, or or what advice would you give um, to any creative people who want to kind of hold attention or create ads for for you know YouTube or social video, which tend to not work as hard as TV because you, you don't you don't pay as much attention to them as as even um, Karen Nelson Fieldworks suggests. So what what like given everything that, that you know about creative and, and how to tell stories and what works for video and digital video, what what tips would you advise creatives to, to, yes. to keep in mind? Well it is quite difficult in um particularly in feed environments to to capture and hold attention. You know, uh, uh, Karen, this is the other thing that she'll probably 
show or talk about is that it suggests with her research shows that you know there are law-like patterns um, across different media types, media channels and formats that you know, irrespective of creative, you know, you're not, you're not going to. It's going to be really difficult for you, basically, through through a create through creative genius, to hold attention in yeah. some in some environments. But there are some environments which are a bit better than others, and pre-roll is 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 pretty good as the online video goes, from her research. And you know, television, cinema, these things are very good uh, environments. But you know, what I show is that if people are still watching an ad, even in those lower tension environments after about five seconds, the chances are they're watching um, uh, something with right brain features, character, incident and place, uh, something unfolding in lived time in a def definable place, perhaps something slightly out of the ordinary. Uh, the sort of thing that you might find perhaps on TikTok, um, you know, character, incident, place again. Yeah. And so, so, you know, if you're thinking about, this, you know, I, I say, you know, Advertising, as Paul Feldwick says, it's a bit like putting on a show. Well, you know, where is the stage for our show these days? I think it, it's the high attention media um, that we need to be looking at and uh, creating work that well, has that, you know, the character incident place I described. Um, so, so that's that, that. That would be my sort of advice. Characters too, fluent devices, particularly once you've established them amongst the a broad, you know, audience, probably through TV, um, because of their voice, their their movement, their you know, funny gestures, their eyebrows, everything else. You know, these are the things that are likely to to hold attention, and even even in low attention environments, I think it's fair to say. Right. Okay. Great. Well. Well, I'm, I'm going to let you go because I've taken more of your time um, than than I thought I would. So, um, but I've really enjoyed that. So, it's it's thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy man, so thanks for taking the time to join me. This no, morning. absolute pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed chatting. Yeah, no, um, and I I urge. I mean, I think as well. This comes up quite a lot. I think we we live in a in a time where we have lots of really good, uh, you know, books and thinking around how advertising works. Uh, so I'd urge anyone who's listening, if you haven't read Lemon or Look Out, you should get them, read them. They're, they're they're beautifully designed, but they're also a great read. So I really enjoyed them. So I would urge everyone to to um, invest in a copy. Anyone who's worth their salt in marketing, invest in a copy and buy it. Um, so um, yeah, as I said, thanks. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to our friends in Irish Times Media Solutions. And thanks to Kira in Marketing and Andrea on Sound. If you like this episode, listen back to our 80 odd other episodes you'll find them by typing inside marketing Irish Times into your search engine of choice until next time stay safe the inside marketing podcast brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions <laughs>